Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Please take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, as we are continuing our study together of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we will be looking at verses 17 to 20. Every time I get ready to uh, preach through a book of the Bible or begin a new sermon series, I try to uh, gather around me very good, very helpful, very trusted resources and commentaries uh, ranging from, you know, the more technical, the more dense to the more practical. And um, I do that not only to benefit me and my own preparation, but also to benefit, I hope, benefit you. It's often why I will quote from them, just to serve you well. And it never fails that there are a handful of those resources, maybe, maybe three or four of them, that sort of rise to the top um, in, in what I find to be the most helpful week in and week out as I'm preparing. They're sort of my go-to resources. Well, I was looking at one of my go-tos this week, one of those trusted resources. Uh, it was D.A. Carson's helpful book on the Sermon on the Mount. I often find Carson to be very helpful. And here was one of the first lines I read in his book about our passage here this week. Quote, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. So I immediately closed that book and said, oh no. <laughs> oh no. Oh, thank you, Carson. <laughs> of course. That's not what you want to hear. And yet we come this morning to one of the most important, but also one of the most debated, one of the most dense passages, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, but perhaps even in the entire New Testament, and Carson says even in the Bible. And so just to prepare you, it's, it's going to take on your part this morning, I think, some careful thinking. You need to put your thinking caps on this morning, and hopefully on my part, some careful explanation this morning as we try to walk through the various ways this passage has been interpreted and what it means, because verses 17 to 20 do set a trajectory for not only how we're going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but also even very practically how you should read, understand, and interpret the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So this is a very important, very pivotal passage of Scripture. So without further ado, let's jump right in this morning, and we'll read it together, and then we'll beg the Spirit to help us, okay? Would you stand with me, if you're able, out of honor for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Apostle Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very words of Jesus Himself, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, 
unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. Our passage this morning are some of Jesus' greatest and most practical teachings. Verses 17 to 20 are one of Jesus' greatest and most practical teachings. Pastor, you just said that this passage was extremely difficult, extremely dense, extremely debated. In fact, I'll just be honest with you, pages and pages and pages have been written on how to understand just one word in verse 17, fulfill. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does Jesus mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? And then, if you're asking this, how is that practical for my life? And the reason I say it's practical is because not only are these verses here critical if we're going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, this is really now launching into the main part of this sermon here. It's critical for understanding that. But these verses are also pivotal, beloved, if we're going to understand, dare I say, 75% of our Bibles. Three-fourths of the Bible. Do you realize that the majority of your Bible is Old Testament? And here we see not only what Jesus thinks about the Old Testament, how he views the Old Testament, but he also provides us here the interpretive lens, the, the key that unlocks for us how we are to understand, read, and apply all of the Bible both the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the commands, all the laws of the Old Testament right here. So, wouldn't you say that's helpful? Wouldn't you say that's practical? Absolutely. If you want to follow Jesus, obey Jesus, treasure the Word of God and be faithful to the Word of God, absolutely. Because Jesus is going to say here in a moment, He hasn't come to abolish the commands of the Old Testament, to do away with them, but to fulfill them. So then, what does that mean? And does that mean I have to keep them all? All of them? Do I need to keep the Sabbath? What did you do yesterday? Do I need to give up eating shellfish? I hope there's no shellfish on the menu today, ham either, chicken, depending on how it's prepared. Did everybody check their thread count in the shirt this morning when they walked into this room? We, ha we can't have any mixed threads in here, right? 30% polyester, 70%. I don't know if people wear polyester. Now, I joke, I joke, but this is actually very relevant for you. That's all in the Old Testament, by the way. How is this relevant? Because not only what commands am I supposed to obey, but think about this. Many today will actually mock Christians for the shellfish command who forbid homosexuality. Oh, yeah, your Bible, it forbids homosexuality, but it also forbids eating shellfish, and you eat shellfish. Be consistent, Christian. You see? This is very practical. And we better have answers. And so this passage is practical for your Christian life and understanding the entire Bible and what the coming of Jesus Christ now means for you in relationship to all the commands and all the laws of the Bible. So even if today's sermon might seem a bit heady, I pray it will be very 
helpful to you. But these verses, notice here, are also very helpful in understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because really, these verses here, notice, look with me, they serve as the introduction now to the next section of Jesus' sermon. I told you last week that you could really break up the Sermon on the Mount into three sections, three parts. We just finished section number one there in verses 3 to 16, which we called the blessings of the kingdom. We saw the Beatitudes, these eight blessings of God on his kingdom citizens. And then last week, notice there in verses 13 to 16, we saw how Jesus' kingdom citizens will be a blessing as well to the world. These two powerful metaphors of salt and light. But now we're entering into the second section of this sermon. Section number two, which we entitled, if you remember, The Radical Righteousness of the Kingdom. And that spans here from verse 17 all the way to chapter 7 in verse 12. And the reason we're calling it the radical righteousness of the kingdom is because of how extreme Jesus' teaching will be here on the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom. In fact, look at verse 20, our text this morning. For I tell you, This is setting the direction of what's about to follow. Unless your righteousness, disciples, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most moral, most religious people of his day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't make it to heaven. And then, verse 21, notice, through verse 48, Jesus is going to continue this description of this radical righteousness by giving us six specific examples. Six specific examples, which we'll unpack over the weeks to come, of what he means by the radical righteousness of the kingdom. And notice, all six begin... With that phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, 33, 38, 48, 43, you see it there. Where he deals with issues of anger, lust, divorce and marriage, truth-telling, retaliating, loving your enemies. And in doing so, he calls us to a radical righteousness. And so if if I could just this morning lay all of my cards on the table, because we're not going to get to verse 20 until the end. This radical righteousness he's talking about here that must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is a righteousness that isn't merely external. It isn't merely external, but is a righteousness that flows from a transformed heart. It's a righteousness that has been, that that comes out of a life that's been transformed by grace. Or you could say it like this. It isn't a quantitatively different righteousness. Like, here's their level of righteousness, and I just got to have a little bit more than them if I want to make it in. No. It is a qualitatively different righteousness. Not quantitatively, qualitatively Meaning it's a different kind. It's a different quality. It's a righteousness that's internal, that comes from the inside out. And Jesus is going to demonstrate this radical righteousness in these six examples by relating it, notice, to the Old Testament. So he's going to show us how the righteousness that he's calling for here, he's calling his disciples to, this internal righteousness is a fulfilling a filling out of the Old Testament scriptures and commands. So what I thought might be helpful this morning as we walk through these is I just want to ask some questions of verses 17 to 20. Questions that I think will be helpful to you in unpacking this text. Questions that I had as I was studying this week. Let me give you three. Three questions. Question number one, 
What does it mean that Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets? What does it mean that he's not come to abolish them? Verse 17, what does that mean? Second question, what does it mean that the law and the prophets are fulfilled? Verse 17, what does that mean? Why does he say that? And then the last question is, what is this radical righteousness required in verse 20 to enter the kingdom of heaven? Those three, okay? Question number one, what does it mean that Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets? Well, notice there in verse 17, you might not have noticed that Jesus is actually talking here about the Old Testament. Because he, he uses an expression there, notice, the law and the prophets. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, I don't know about your translation, but the ESV capitalizes law and prophets. And then it does so again, if you notice down in verse 18, where he just says, Law, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all has been accomplished. If you remember, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says that everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In the Hebrew Bible, it's ordered differently than your English Bibles. There's three divisions. There's the law, there's the prophets, and there's the writings, and the first book of the writings is the Psalms. But sometimes it says law, prophets, and Psalms. Sometimes it just says law and prophets. So law and prophets is really just a common shorthand way of referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. You know, sometimes we say the House and the Senate. Sometimes we just say the Congress, right? But Congress is made up of the House and the Senate. And in the same way, the Old Testament is made up of the law and the prophets. It's just shorthand for the whole thing. And in verse 17, notice Jesus says, look there, don't think, and it's emphatic, meaning don't even, don't even let this thought cross your mind, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, I haven't come to abolish anything in the Old Testament. Now, why does he say that? What, what, what might have prompted him to say that? Verse 17, that word abolish means to do away with. It means to destroy. It's seen in the Bible used to talk about the destruction of something. So Jesus is saying here, don't you think for one second that I have come to destroy, that I have come to abolish, that I have come to tear down the Old Testament? No. Now, why would he say that? And I think the reason he says that is in order to clear up any misunderstandings or accusations against him. Let's just clear the air. Because there may be certain things that Jesus does and says that might cause some to think that. That he's throwing away the Old Testament scriptures. I remember a few years ago a popular pastor who will remain nameless who said Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm saying at all. Although some might think that's what he's saying. Now, why would they think that? Well, for example, think about Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath day. Disciples, if you remember, are walking through the grain fields, plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12. And the Pharisees say, uh-uh, you can't be working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Or how about this? When he challenges the various traditions that have grown up around the law that the Pharisees and scribes had put in place as sort of guardrails around the law, like in Matthew chapter 15 about these various washings. And so some may have gotten the impression 
accusing him that he's doing away with the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus wants to make very plain that he isn't abolishing any of it. Or how about this? Some might think it's because of these six, notice here in the Sermon on the Mount, six antitheses, these six examples in verses 21 to 48, where he says, notice for example, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, quoting from the Old Testament law, you shall not murder and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment, quoting from Exodus and Deuteronomy. But then verse 22, but I say to you, and so some could wrongly assume that Jesus has a negative attitude toward the Old Testament and that he's just thrown away the Old Testament scriptures. But he doesn't want you to think that any of these contrasts here that he's about to make is him speaking one negative word about the Old Testament. No, that isn't the case at all. And so Jesus is saying, okay, before we get to these six antitheses, these six statements I'm about to make here in verse 21 and following, I want, I want to make one thing absolutely clear. I want to be clear that you shouldn't think this at all. I'm in no way abolishing the Old Testament. There is no loss of force. There's no loss of authority. It hasn't become invalid. I'm not annulling it. I'm not repealing it. I'm not abolishing it. Not at all. And so he is holding the Old Testament in the highest possible regard. Back, look there, verse 18. For, here's why I'm not abolishing it. Truly I say to you. Now again, that's emphatic. The strongest possible affirmation. Truly I say. When the source of all truth says truly, listen up. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota, not a dot. King James says, not a jot or tittle. What's a jot and tittle? What's a iota and a dot? An iota, this is a reference to the smallest Hebrew letter, to yod, which almost just kind of looks like an apostrophe. That's an iota. And then, look at verse 18, a dot is probably a reference to the smallest marking in Hebrew. It's often used to differentiate between letters in the Hebrew language. It's sort of like the difference between a lowercase n and a lowercase h, right? It's just that one little line. If you don't draw the line high enough, you're like, is that an n? Is that an h? I don't know, right? One little mark. The, the, the English equivalent saying would be, not a T will be uncrossed, not an I will be undotted. And Jesus is saying, even that, even the smallest stroke of the pen isn't going to be abolished. In fact, look at verse 18. No part of the Old Testament, right down to the smallest letter, will be done away with in any way, any shape, any form, until, verse 18, the end of the world, until heaven and earth pass away, and until, verse 18, every promise of the Old Testament is fulfilled, until all, everything written in it is accomplished. D.A. Carson writes, which probably means never until the end of time. Not one little letter will pass away. So church, I, I just want you to see here Jesus' extremely high view of the Old Testament. It's perfection. Not a small 
letter, not a mark, not an iota, not a dot. It's going to fall and fail, going to prove to be untrue. It's perfection. It's permanence. It's going to remain until the end of time. Every promise is going to be fulfilled. Jesus, he is clearly demonstrating here the inspiration, the reliability, the inerrancy, the enduring authority of the Old Testament. And so I just wonder, do we have the same view as Jesus did about the Old Testament? Are we a people that cherishes the whole Bible? That reads the whole Bible? Oh, the old, uh, I don't need that. Not according to Jesus. And are we a church that believes that it's all given by God and it is all to be loved, believed, and obeyed. In fact, look at verse 19. Jesus says, the Old Testament is so important that if you don't teach it, if you relax it, you are the least citizen in the kingdom of heaven. If, if you take a negative attitude toward the Old Testament, ah, that's just the old stuff, we don't need that. You are the low man on the totem pole. Look there, verse 19. Therefore, because it isn't passing away, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least, least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, whoever teaches them, verse 19, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And trust me, you want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How important is your attitude toward the Bible, beloved? Here we're told that our rank in the kingdom of heaven is determined by your obedience to and your teaching of the Old Testament. And I agree with one commentator who writes, notice this quote, quote, that Jesus does not refer here to loss of salvation. He's not saying you'll lose your salvation. That's clear from the fact, he says, that although offenders will be called least in the kingdom, we'll still be in the kingdom. But blessing, reward, fruitfulness, joy, and usefulness will be sacrificed to the extent that we are disobedient. So do you love, do you cherish the whole Bible? All scripture breathed out by God. How dare we neglect it? But that raises a very good question, doesn't it? If no part is abolished, Jesus says, and every part stands to the end of time, as he says, does that mean I have to keep it all? Every command? This goes back to the shellfish mixed fabric illustration I used a moment ago. Are, are, are Christians still under all the commands of the Old Testament? Why do Christians obey certain commands, like don't lie, but then ignore others, like don't trim the edges of your beard? I did that this week as a visual illustration for you. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27. Are we cherry-picking? So then, how are we to understand, in light of Christ and His coming, our relationship to the Old Testament law? And that's where He turns next. That's our next question. Question number two. What does it mean that the law and the prophets are fulfilled? Do you see that there in verse 17? If Jesus hasn't set aside the Old Testament, it still stands, it's still authoritative, it still matters, then how has the new covenant believer's relationship to it changed? Has it changed? Verse 17, he doesn't want anyone to think he means anything in the Old Testament is abolished, but he doesn't say the Old Testament law is unchanged, does he? He doesn't say it's abolished, but he does say it's fulfilled. 
It's changed. In other words, the law's permanence, the enduring authority until the end of history doesn't mean it continues to function in the same way as it did before Jesus. It's now changed. Do not think I have come to abolish it. I have come to fulfill it. So what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill it? Now this is the most, one of the most debated points of theology. Okay, can we just admit this? Because the relationship between the old covenant, the new covenant, the law, the gospel, how exactly does the law relate to us New Testament believers today in light of the gospel? What does it mean it's fulfilled? And you need to know that good Bible-believing Christians interpret this passage differently and understand the relationship between the Old Covenant and New Covenant differently. So what might those differences be? Well, let me just give you two, although there are more. And then let me tell you how I understand Jesus to mean here he's fulfilled it, okay? Two differing views, all right? First, view number one is called theonomy. I told you to put your thinking caps on. Theonomy. T-H-E-O-N-O-M-Y. Theonomy. It comes from two words, theos, meaning God, namas, meaning law, God's law. Theonomy. This is a view that's kind of surging right now. It's a view that's currently being popularized by guys like Doug Wilson, which basically teaches that the entire Mosaic law is binding on Christians today. That the Christians must obey the whole of the Old Testament and our government should impose the laws and penalties of the Old Testament. Now, there are many reasons why that teaching is very, very dangerous. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. And, and I don't have time to go into that right now, but you need to be aware of it. Theonomy. That's view number one. View number two. Very popular among Presbyterians, even Reformed Baptists. It's called the tripartite distinction. Or if that's, that makes your head hurt, then you can just say the three divisions. The three divisions of the law. This view states the law can be divided into three kinds of law. There's civil law, there's ceremonial law, and there's moral law. This view states that not all the laws of the Old Testament are the same, right? Some are civil, mixed fabrics, eating shellfish, all the laws that govern the nation of Israel. Right? Putting a fence around your roof so nobody falls off and dies. That's in there. And Christ has now abolished those civil laws. Because that was for one country at one time, the nation of Israel. But now, the gospel going to the nations, we're not one nation anymore. Those are done away with. And then, so that's civil laws. Some are ceremonial laws. A, a lamb being sacrificed by a priest in a temple. But those ceremonial laws have also come to an end through Jesus as well because he was the final sacrifice for our sins. He's the great high priest. So the ceremonial ones are gone too. But some of the laws are moral laws. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, the Ten Commandments. And they're always, though, binding. Even today. So the ceremonial laws fulfilled in Jesus, civil laws done away with because we're not the nation of Israel anymore, and moral laws, those are always remaining. Now, while I appreciate those who hold this view, and while those three categories can be helpful, this threefold division, I think, is mistaken. First, because the Bible never divides them that way. 
That's a, that's a man-made construct. Second, because as much as they would like it to, they don't break down that nicely into those three categories. Civil, ceremonial, moral. Because even the civil and the ceremonial have a moral component to them. Plus, that threefold division has a lot of trouble here in verse 17. Look there. Because Jesus doesn't say, I've come to abolish two-thirds of the law. The civil and ceremonial, those are done. But not one-third of the law, the moral law. No, what does he say? I haven't come to abolish any of it. All of it remains to the end. So then, I think there's a better way here for how to understand what Jesus means by fulfilling the law. So if it's not, if that's not what Jesus means, what does he mean? And I think we can understand Jesus fulfilling the law in four ways, four ways, and then let me give you some helpful examples where we see that worked out in the New Testament, okay? Four ways Jesus fulfills the law. First, number one, Jesus fulfills what the law and prophets prophesied. What the law and prophets prophesied. In other words, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies and predictions. For example, if you've got your place there in Matthew, go to chapter 1 for a moment. Matthew chapter 1. The angel, remember, appears to Joseph and tells him that Mary is going to conceive and have a son. Matthew chapter 1, look there, verse 22. Matthew says, all this to, took place to fulfill same word as in verse 17 of chapter 5. Fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus fulfills this Old Testament prediction about a virgin birth. Or look at chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, the birthplace of the Messiah is predicted by the prophet Micah. Chapter 2, verse 5, they told him, that's the wise men telling Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he quotes from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that the birthplace of the Messiah was predicted and Jesus fulfills that. By being born in Bethlehem. So he's fulfilling Old Testament predictions, Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, the kingdom of God, his plan of salvation. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy. That's the first way. So Jesus is saying the law and the prophets had a prophetic function. And it was all pointing to me. That's why he says... In Luke chapter 24, notice this in verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In fact, this is one of Matthew's most prominent themes. Sixteen times in this gospel he uses that phrase, this took place to fulfill. So, Old Testament promise, great reality fulfilled in Jesus. He, predict, he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Here's the second way he fulfills. Jesus fulfills what the law and prophets pattern. What they pattern. Like you go to Hobby Lobby, you buy a pattern for a dress, ladies. I don't know if you do that. It's a pattern. So we, we don't just get fulfillment from explicit promises, but we also get fulfillment from patterns. The Old Testament has patterns, shadows, types, pictures pointing to a greater reality that's coming. 
They're not always so explicit. For example, go back to Matthew chapter 2. We see this early on, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Notice here, Jesus, Mary, baby Jesus, Mary, Joseph are down in Egypt. And if you remember way back in the Old Testament somewhere, I think it's the Exodus, God brought his son, Israel, out of the land of Egypt. And that was a pattern of a greater fulfillment to come. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, baby Jesus down in Egypt. He's coming up out of Egypt. And then look what Matthew does. He quotes from Hosea 11.1. Look there, Matthew 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. (laughs) So sometimes the Old Testament gives us a pattern Pictured in Israel, being brought out of slavery, but fulfilled in Jesus, bringing his own people out of slavery from sin. So Jesus fulfills patterns as well. And there are many others. He is the new Moses. He is the true temple. He is the true and better Adam. He is the Passover lamb. And what Jesus is saying, notice there in verse 17, is that all the commandments of the Old Testament are to be viewed in the same way. They weren't ultimate. They were all to be fulfilled in a greater way in Jesus. He would take the law and he would take the prophets like this little flickering candle. And he's going to blow it up to the brightness of the sun. The law is good, it's enduring, but what Christ has done goes so much deeper, so much fuller, and it fulfills all that was promised in the law and the prophets. Fulfilling the explicit promises and even shadows and patterns. Here's the third way. Jesus fulfills not only prophecies and patterns, but he also fulfills what the law and prophets teach what they teach. Christ, in other words, teaches us what the law intends. The truer, fuller meaning. Verse 17, look there, that word fulfill, it means to complete. It means to fill up. It means to make full. It means to finish. In other words, Jesus fills up what the Old Testament teaches. He is the true interpreter of the law. He's teaching the law in a way that brings out its truest sense by explaining its true meaning and its true intent. In fact, we see that here, notice, in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Look there in these six examples. Because what he's doing here is he's correcting misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the law. He's showing that the true meaning of the law goes way beyond what the Pharisees taught. That the law actually goes beyond the mere external Look there again, chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard it was said. Why had they heard it? The law says it. Now you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now is Jesus doing anything here to abolish this command? Is he doing something to fill it up? To fill it out? You betcha. He's pressing the law deeper. He's pressing the law fuller. Verse 21, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's external. Don't murder. 
But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's internal. The Old Testament law made it clear that God despises murder. Jesus is focusing on the heart. He's drilling down deeper. And he wants to get at the heart attitude of anger. And he does the same thing with lust. It's not just about sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, having sex outside of marriage. It goes deeper than that. It's, it's not just about divorce and, and just, just keeping the marriage together. It goes deeper than that. If the law shows us in the beginning it was wrong for Cain to murder Abel, and he says you should not murder Deuteronomy chapter 5, this external physical act, Jesus is saying not just murder, hate. A radical righteousness. Establishing a law that presses to the heart. So do you see what's happening here? He's ramping it up to the nth degree. In fact, he's ramping it up to the Christ degree. I'm under the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 says... He's the true interpreter of the law, and he's revealing the truer, deeper meaning of the law. And the true obedience is a matter of your heart. Finally, fourth way, Jesus fulfills what the law requires. Jesus fulfills what the law requires. Please listen. In other words, he and he alone is the one who has perfectly kept the law. He alone has lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law in every way. Brothers and sisters, listen, where you and I have failed, He has succeeded. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly by his perfect obedience to the law. He has kept all of the commands. He has kept them to the nth degree. And by dying on the cross in our place to satisfy the just demands of the law against us, he has taken all the wrath of God and all the judgment of God that we deserve, which is what all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. It all points to him. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Praise God, never sinning, keeping it perfectly at every point, dying in our place so that all, all who would put their hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ will be forgiven We'll be justified, we'll be saved, we'll be redeemed under the law. In fact, Matthew chapter 3, go back. Look at this, Matthew chapter 3. Jesus comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan. You remember this? It's baptism John's doing for the for, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus comes to be baptized and John says, no, 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 I, you, you need to baptize me. I can't baptize you. Look what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What's he saying? By being baptized here, Jesus is identifying himself with sinful humanity as our representative, as our substitute, standing in our place. And then you know what happens next in Matthew chapter 4? Immediately he is sent into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Just quoting verses back to the devil. Remember that? Old Testament where he is perfectly obedient without sin so that he 
might be our perfect representative before God. And so that his perfect righteousness could be counted to you by faith. He fulfills what the law requires. In other words, when Jesus says, I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, he means that it is all fixed on me. It is all about me. It's all pointing to him. He's the sum total of the law. Every promise, every command, every pattern, every type, they're all terminating on him. Which means, for the New Testament believer, the law has come to an end in one sense. Not abolished, not done away with, doesn't mean it's no longer authoritative, but its function in the life of the Christian has been replaced. It's been changed now by the new covenant in Christ. The law of Christ. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. You know, I've often found that understanding the, the complexities of this idea of fulfillment, it works better with examples than just the theoretical. So can I just give you some examples of what I mean as we close here? Example number one, okay? Breathe in deep, all right? Focus on your breathing. Here we go. Example number one. I thought this would go better. Example number one. Let me, let me, let me give it in the form of questions. Should Christians offer animal sacrifices? No. Okay. <laughs> Why? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 the writer of Hebrews says, he entered once for all into the holy places by, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, Jesus is the final sacrifice that all the other sacrifices pointed to. So has he abolished the law? No, he's fulfilled it. That's an easy one. Let's get harder. Question number two. Should Christians celebrate the Passover? Israel was passed over, you remember, by the angel of death. They celebrated, they ate this meal together without any leaven, without any yeast, right? The symbol of sin. So should Christians celebrate the Passover? I wonder what you'd say. Go with me, if you would, for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this very familiar passage on church discipline, where the man has his father's wife. Remember that? And Paul says, purge the evil from among you. And he commands the excommunication of this man who won't repent of his sin. But listen very carefully to how Paul describes church discipline here. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. You're, you're bragging, church, about having a sinful guy in your midst. That's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that a little bit of yeast makes the bread grow? It, it, it's, it permeates the whole thing. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, your congregation should be free from leaven. It should be free from sin. It should be free from anything that would make it grow in impure ways. But then look what he says in verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What on earth just happened? Paul is saying to this church, 
Oh, yeah, when you get together, you're celebrating the Passover, all right. Do you realize we're celebrating the Passover every single week when we gather together as a church? We're celebrating that Jesus has delivered us out of the bondage of slavery to sin. That the angel of death, praise God, has passed over you because the blood of Christ has been put over the cross of Christ. But we dare not celebrate it with sin in our midst. Allowing malice and evil to grow in your midst. Instead, get it out of the church and celebrate it with truth and righteousness. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, every time we gather Second Baptist Church, purifying ourselves, celebrating Jesus, our Passover lamb, we're obeying the Old Testament command to celebrate the Passover. Has Jesus abolished the Passover? Has he fulfilled the Passover? Does it remain as long as heaven and earth exist? Are you teaching people to relax it? Or are you actually teaching and doing it in a fulfilled way? Third example. Here's my favorite. Should Christians pay their pastors? See how I like it? Do you know that when you pay your pastors, you're actually fulfilling the civil laws of the Old Testament? Don't believe me? Stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Go to verse 7 for a moment. Paul's talking here about paying your pastors. But the way he gets there is really interesting. Look at, where does he turn? Well, look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Who serves as a soldier? By his own expense. He's just given some common sense illustrations here. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? In other words, you do the work, you should be compensated. But then look at verse 8. Do I say these things on a human authority? Meaning, okay, I've just given you some common sense illustrations. And then notice what he says. Does not the law, the law of Moses, Say the same, for it is written in the law of Moses, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 25, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, oxen plowing the field should be able to eat some of the wheat. And then verse 9, look there. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Yes, that's why he gave the law. But then look what he says. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? The church? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope for sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things among you? Do you see what's going on here? Paul is taking the most obscure Old Testament law, feeding your oxen. And he sees it fulfilled in the Christian church as they make sure their pastors who work hard get paid. That you and I are fulfilling every single part of the law. Now, let me ask you this. Has he abolished that law? Has he fulfilled it? Last example. We'll go back to an easy one. Should Christians be loving? Romans 13, look here. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling, fulfilling of the law. Second Baptist Church 
if you love, there is not an iota, there is not a dot, there is not a jot, there is not a tittle of the law that you are neglecting. Not a single part of the law. Paul says in Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And Second Baptist Church, I see the ways you're fulfilling the law all the time in the ways that you love one another. I, I have been the recipient of that this week. And when you do that, you are fulfilling the whole law. I hope those examples are helpful. And the explanation of those four ways Jesus fulfills the law. Final question, and it's my conclusion. I'll be done. I'll sit down, and we'll sing, and then we'll eat. Okay? Very briefly. Question number three. What is the radical righteousness required in verse 20? Let me just say, you're going to see this in weeks to come. Look there at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm quite certain that when Jesus said that, there was an audible gasp in the crowd. What? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most holy, squeaky clean, religious, moral guys, you won't make it to heaven. Now listen, this is very important. The righteousness required here is not imputed righteousness. This is not the perfect righteousness of Jesus that he credits to your account when you, in justification when you believe, right? 2 Corinthians 5, he made him a new no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. No, that's not what he is saying here. That's absolutely true, praise God, but that's a classic example of good theology, wrong text. That's not what he means here. So what is he saying then? That term righteousness consistently in Matthew refers to a personal righteousness. An, a, a personal obedience to God's command. In a conformity of your character expressed in your behavior, speech, and attitude. And if you don't have that, Jesus says, you won't make it to heaven. Charles Quarles writes this. He says, this does not suggest that either Jesus or Matthew regarded kingdom entrance as a reward earned by good works. That's not what he's saying. This isn't a righteousness you can earn. Instead, they recognized this surpassing righteousness as, notice this, the necessary evidence of one's identity as a true disciple. In other words, the righteousness that Jesus is demanding here is a gift of God that God by himself, through his Holy Spirit, produces in you through the new covenant, where he removes that old dead heart of stone, and he gives you a new heart, and he puts his law now deep on your heart and this obedience to his law isn't something external. But it flows from a heart that has been transformed by grace. Where the focus is on the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. The focus is on internal matters rather than merely external matters. More about the purity of the heart than just the purity of the hand. In other words, it's an altogether different kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that changes you from the inside out. Pharisees and scribes, they loved externals. Maybe that's some of you. You're really good at following the commands. You're really good at trying to look like you have it all together and be a real moral person and do everything. Jesus is interested in your heart. Is that you? Is that you? Has your heart been changed by this Jesus? The one whom the law and the prophets pointed to? 
the one who alone fulfills the law. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.